Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of our Risk and Regulation Rundown podcast. This is a monthly podcast where we discuss the latest risk and regulatory developments affecting our industry, some insights from our work with clients and our perspective on industry talking points. I'm Sarah Eisted, your regular host, and this month I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Cowan and Nigel Willis to talk about financial crime and prudential regulatory reporting. So starting with financial crime, Chris, I know you've been doing a lot of work recently on the latest piece of EU regulation in this space, the fifth money laundering directive known as 5MLD, which was recently transposed into UK law. I know it covers a huge range of really interesting areas. So can you start by giving us an overview of what this directive involves and how its requirements differ from the fourth anti-money laundering directive? Thank you, Sarah. So 5MLD, as it's known, came into force on the 10th of January 2020, and it was introduced in response to recent terrorist events in Europe and also the Panama Papers, as well as the continued evolution of the financial services landscape. And it builds on the fourth MLD from a few years ago in a number of key ways, particularly by bringing into scope newly obliged entities such as crypto asset businesses. And to address the growing money laundering risks associated with cryptocurrencies, including virtual currency exchange platforms and custodian wallet providers, they are now within the scope of the fifth money laundering directive. It's also been extended to include all forms of tax advisory services, as well as some non-financial services areas, such as letting agents and art dealers with transactions over 10,000 euros. But importantly, firms who are already within the scope of the fourth money laundering directive should have been considering, for arguably quite a while now, how to approach and successfully navigate compliance with some key additions to the regulation around. And I'll just pick a few areas if that's okay. So firstly, increasing the transparency of beneficial ownership information. Secondly, clarifying enhanced due diligence measures for high-risk third countries. Thirdly, improving the identification of politically exposed persons. And fourthly, lowering the threshold requirements for customer due diligence on prepaid cards. And those are just a few examples to bring it to life. So while the changes introduced by the fifth directive are not as extensive as those under the fourth directive, the drive for transparency has a number of significant implications for firms. Um, And as with previous iterations of the EU money laundering directives, there is always an element of uncertainty around how firms can reasonably and proportionately implement changes to ensure that they're compliant. And uh, the the point about being reasonable and proportionate, I know, has always been a, a challenge in these areas. But I understand on the fifth money laundering directive that the UK transposition has in some ways gone beyond what was required in the directive. So can you give us a bit more information yes. on that as well? Yeah, that's absolutely right, Sarah. And, you know, in the UK, the transposition of the fifth directive into national legislation has recently been via the money laundering and terrorist financing amendment regulations, which came in just before Christmas, actually. Um, and those enhanced the 2017 money laundering regulations in the UK. And one area where the UK has gone above what was required in the directive, in effect gold plating, 5MLD, has been in the expanded definition of crypto assets. So the government decided via consultation that the definition of virtual currencies set out in 5MLD was not wide enough to cover all the potential illegal activity involving crypto assets. And they also expanded the scope of the crypto asset regulation um, to mirror the latest financial action task force standards on virtual asset service providers. 
and all relevant activities involving three broad types of crypto assets, such as exchange tokens, security tokens, and utility tokens, are now captured. Um, and this is obviously quite a key change in the UK. And so what will this mean in practical terms, I suppose in particular for firms that were already in the scope of the fourth money laundering directive? Yeah, and I think it's a really good question because firms have had a lot of time to be thinking about this over the past few years. And if they're not ready now, you know, it's arguably they've been asleep on their watch, you know, yeah. from a compliance professional perspective. So one example to bring that to life where obliged entities should have embedded additional procedures into their customer due diligence framework to reflect changes in, you know, customer due diligence, beneficial ownership, and also enhanced due diligence requirements. And there are a number of practical challenges around how they can actually do that. So if I take an example, you know, which I referred to earlier, you know, lowering the threshold requirement for customer due diligence on prepaid cards, you know, there's a broad aim to substantially reduce the risk of anonymous prepaid instruments, for example, gifts and travel cards that we use every day, um, as to being misused for the purposes of money laundering or terrorist financing. And 5MOD has lowered the threshold from 250 euros to 150 euros. It might seem small, but actually with that sort of high volume activity and maybe low value activity is quite significant yeah. and the threshold for online transactions with prepaid cards is reduced to 50 euros now a second area just to touch on is beneficial ownership which is obviously very very important in the area of money laundering compliance um, and there has been quite a lot of change under 5mld so member states are required to develop public ownership registers that are accessible and also potentially interconnected across countries. And the ability to scrutinize ownership structures plays a really big role in fighting the global money laundering problem. And for firms, it's arguable that the registers will provide more transparency on their clients, but the additional information searches may add a significant workload to already stretched compliance teams. Absolutely. You know, and I could go on into more detail around enhanced due diligence, but I think you know those few examples sort of brings it to life, hopefully. Definitely, and and you at the start you touched upon the fact that this was also bringing in some new organisations. Yes. So, what will five MLD mean for those um, organisations coming into scope for the first time? So, for example, you talked about um, cryptocurrency exchanges. Yes. So I think it's actually a big, big change for them, um, you know, having not been regulated before. So in the UK, a key change is that the Financial Conduct Authority has now become the anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing supervisor of UK-based crypto asset businesses. And they will need to dedicate the appropriate resource and expertise to building a robust anti-financial crime and money laundering risk management framework. They will need to demonstrate to the Financial Conduct Authority and other regulators and arguably also their investors that they have an ability to mitigate the financial crime risk within their business, which I would argue be critical to ongoing commercial success. So the implications are quite far reaching. Um, newly obliged entities will need to comply with all the relevant aspects of the existing sort of regulation as well, which is quite extensive around customer due diligence, ongoing monitoring, having the appropriate governance structures in place as well. So some examples of that are, you know, firms should be asking themselves, you know, have they got in place the right culture, the right resources and the expertise to combat financial crime? Have they articulated their risk appetite and devised a framework for assessing money laundering terrorist financing risk? Have they considered the impact of conducting due diligence on new and existing customers in line with the regulations? And also have they set up a framework for the reporting of suspicious activity, both internally and externally? So there's a lot there for firms to be thinking about and actually, you know, demonstrates a lot of effort is required. 
definitely. I mean, that, that list for the new entrants um, under this scope is, is significant. Yes. Um, so, Chris, as firms implementing these changes, are there any particular aspects of the rules that they're finding challenging? Yeah, again, you know, very good question, Sarah. And it is very early days, um, given the implementation date of the 10th of January. Having said that, n you know, existing firms should have been doing quite a lot already. Absolutely. But I think for the new firms, um, you know, it's arguable to say, have they really done much so far? And actually a lot haven't even necessarily registered with the FCA yet, which is the key requirement they have to do sort of over a set time period that the FCA have set out. But I think, you know, one of the areas where I would argue firms will find challenging is you know around beneficial ownership, which we discussed earlier, yeah. but also around enhanced due diligence. So looking at that in a bit more detail, um, firms will now need to conduct enhanced due diligence on both the sender and the recipient in a transaction. So this is sort of going above just the customer relationship itself, but actually really getting to the nitty gritty of the transactions. And that's particularly relevant for businesses dealing with correspondent banking, which again is quite a hot topic area at the moment with you know regulators globally. So far, obliged entities have focused on conducting customer distance measures really on their customer and extending it to both parties could have operational impacts and it could lead to delays potentially in completing enhanced due diligence for firms. And then I think also looking at crypto assets who are the newly sort of um, newly within the scope of the fifth money launching directive. As you probably well know, they're very much characterised by their anonymity, yes. which presents a risk of financial crime. So the customer due diligence procedures in the regulations are based on identification and verification as key principles. And I would argue that will pose particular challenges for crypto asset firms to embed. Okay. And, and in our podcast last month, we talked about transformation and um, uh, artificial intelligence, actually. So... Are there ways that firms can find opportunities for some cost-saving efficiencies um, or to make processes smoother for the end customer in the way that they implement the changes? I'm thinking through you know, whether they can use technology in different ways, automation, etc., to help. Yeah, so I think this is something which is firms are very much thinking about at the moment, you know, the use of technology, trying to reduce the cost of compliance more generally. And there's no doubt that the implementation of 5MLD has added to the complexity of compliance programs for most firms. You know, and teams have more tasks to complete and a growing requirement, for example, around know your customer checks. And also regulators are recognising that firms should and could utilise the right technology to help them ensure ongoing regulatory compliance. Um, in my view, there's no golden bullet here because um, some firms I've spoken to have a degree of scepticism, particularly around spending vast sums of money yep. on new and sometimes unproved technology around artificial intelligence um, and the like. Um, having said that, they know that they can make savings in the longer term and that the investment is probably a good idea if it's well thought through. And I think particularly in this area, it's around customer onboarding and also, more importantly, the ongoing monitoring of customers and the transactions, which can be very, very voluminous. So they want to deploy automation and wider technology solutions, particularly around that monitoring element of compliance. So if firms standardise their know-your-customer systems and try and remove inconsistent processes, they are likely to save both time and money. And this will apply equally to existing firms who are within the scope of the regulations. Brilliant. Um, thank you, Chris. We could carry on talking about this for some time because it's, it's such an interesting area and so broad. So, so that's been great. Um, 
So now I'm joined by Nigel Willis to talk about another area of focus uh, for a lot of our clients at the moment, which is prudential regulatory returns. And I understand, Nigel, that this is an area where there's been a significant increase in supervisory scrutiny recently. So can you start by giving us a bit of background as to why this is such an area of focus for the prudential regulatory authority at the moment? Yeah, of course, Sarah. Um, let me start by just defining what we mean by prudential regulation, because I, I guess a number of people may not have heard of that term before. Prudential regulation seeks to ensure that firms have adequate financial resources. Um, and, and that really covers various financial measures such as capital, liquidity and leverage. The, the aim is that firms should have adequate capital to absorb losses and adequate liquidity to meet their liabilities as they fall due. So prudential regulation is a key tool used by the regulators to support sort of general financial stability across the financial services industry. Um, I mean, the, the regulatory authorities in the UK, and in particular, the what we call the PRA, which stands for the Prudential Regulation Authority, are increasingly concerned about the completeness and accuracy of the regulatory returns that firms are submitting. Their, their concern is really that they're not seeing an accurate picture of firms' capital and liquidity. Okay. Um, the, the most recent evidence of this really is the latest Dear CEO letter that was released, I guess, back at the end of October, but that was the fifth or sixth Dear CFO or CEO letter we've seen over the last couple of years. Um, the, the PRA has numerous data points validating these concerns, which they've taken from various sources. They have ongoing discussions as part of their day-to-day -day supervisory relationships with firms. Um, they see issues and errors that have hit the press over the last few months. Um, and they also get independent reports from what we call skilled persons and other independent experts that have reviewed various aspects of firms' financial resources. And so what are firms getting wrong and why are they getting this wrong? Um, in terms of what firms are getting wrong, it's, it's a really difficult question because we see various issues and errors cropping up throughout their regulatory reporting. Um, and they can be anything from incorrect and incomplete data through to incorrect computations, through to incorrect reporting and disclosures of the output of their processes. In, in terms of why firms are getting this wrong, I, I guess there's a wide variety of reasons. Firstly, I'd probably say this is just a really complex area. Um, there are a huge amount of rules and regulations. Um, if we start at the European level, we have something called the Capital Requirements Regulation, the CRR, and we have something called Capital Requirements Directive, CRD, and they are supported by what we call EBA Q&As, which is a whole series of questions and answers that are, are released by the European Banking Authority. That is then implemented in the UK, and within the UK we have additional supplementary legislation, for example, PRA supervisory statements and other UK-specific legislation. We also have a huge number of areas where, where the rules are potentially slightly unclear or ambiguous or in some cases contradictory. And so that requires firms to apply a degree of interpretation and judgment when deciding how to report. And also firms are required to submit very large volumes of data in their reporting forms. And actually, to some extent, it, it can be quite difficult for them to see the wood for the trees. Secondly, 
whilst there's a clear expectation that regulatory reporting is underpinned by governance processes and controls that are as robust as those used for financial reporting purposes, this really isn't the case. And, and I guess to some extent that's not surprising. I think the first financial audits were mandated in the 1840s, whereas the original Basel Accord, which was the first attempt at introducing some minimum capital requirements on banks, weren't implemented until 1988. So you can see that they're vastly more recent. And I think finally, in terms of why firms get this wrong, I think we have to reference the fact that firms have probably underinvested in their governance, their process, their data and systems over the years. And this has led to weaknesses in the design and the operating effectiveness of their controls. And I think these weaknesses have probably been the root cause of most of the errors that we've seen in our work. Okay, and thank you, Nigel, for explaining all the acronyms. Yes, sorry, a lot, there, of, lot, of, lot of acronyms. acronyms <laughs> so that's really helpful. So thank you. Um, so, what are some of the examples of the root causes that you're alluding to there that we see? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I guess if we think about the root causes in terms of the four thematic areas that that I previously mentioned, so governance, process, data, and systems. Then if, if I look at each of those in turn, um, in, in terms of governance, we see a lack of ownership and accountability over the end-to-end -end regulatory reporting process. And we see an over-reliance on what I would refer to as detective controls. So where firms are using things like variance analysis, the back end of the process to identify errors that have already occurred, rather than what I would refer to as more preventative type controls to stop the, the error uh, occurring in the first place. If we think in terms of processes, there's generally an over-reliance on upstream teams and processes without really adequately challenge the completeness, the accuracy, the quality of the data that is being provided from those upstream teams. We often see incomplete or ineffective reconciliation controls. For example, whilst firms are, are, are often very good at components of the reconciliation process, and particularly what I'd refer to the financial aspects of regulation, um, so looking at values, at notionals, things that are often relevant to the financial reporting processes, then actually we, fee we see very, very strong reconciliation frameworks. However, uh, where there are um, regulated, what I would call regulatory data attributes, so information that's sort of unique and specific to the regulatory reporting process, then those reconciliations are often a little, a little bit weaker. Um, we often see inappropriate materiality thresholds applied, so firms are effectively considering materiality at far too high a level, which doesn't really get into the nitty-gritty of some of the errors. We see reconcil reconciling items being identified but not investigated. And so collectively, the reconciliation framework is probably one of the most significant control weaknesses that, that we observe. We also see inadequate controls over manual adjustments and also a lack of awareness of um, regulatory rules and regulatory rule changes. Um, if, we, if we turn our attention to data, then we, we often see incomplete data and that leads to records being rejected or simply omitted completely. We see inaccurate data, um, so for example we may see stale data, the use of default values that have been automatically populated by systems, or we may see data requirements have been incorrectly defined and so people are receiving information which they think serves a purpose but actually it was designed to serve a different purpose. The data that's received is often not sufficiently granular, so you only see information at a summary level. 
Um, and often data is not available in a timely manner, and hence that puts sort of undue burden on reporting teams to have to turn around that information very, very quickly. And in terms of the final area, in terms of systems, we see things like source data, source files are not available at the required times. We see systems being incorrectly configured, so the, the wrong calculations are performed. And we actually see just generally insufficient controls over the what I call the calculation and the reporting engines. So similar to sort of 5MOD that Chris was talking us through, the breadth of the issues here are significant. And I know from talking to a number of my clients about this area, they're struggling to know what to do. So what are the PRA's expectations of them? Um, I, mean, uh, I think the PRA's expectations are very clear. They expect complete, accurate and timely reporting underpinned by a robust control of environment that is both designed and operating effectively. Mm. But that is actually a very, very demanding <laughs> situation. So firms should be doing a number of things to try and get to that state. They, they need to be assessing and enhancing the design and the operating effectiveness of their end-to-end -end reporting processes. They need to be validating the accuracy of their data um, and especially those data attributes that um, have not been subject to as much scrutiny as, let's say, the financial data attributes I referenced earlier. Um, and, and you need to do that by looking at that data and comparing it to underlying contracts, term sheets, facility letters. Um, firms should be thinking about conducting deep dives to substantively test the completeness and accuracy of their reporting. And they also need to be thinking about the appropriateness of any significant interpretations and judgments that they have applied and embedded within their processes. Now, depending on the skills and the resources that those firms have available to them, this can either be done internally, so for example, through firms' own internal audit departments, or increasingly we're seeing firms sort of extend um, requests out to external, external third parties to support them. Okay. And so what do you think the future holds for this area of regulation? Um, it, it's unbelievably difficult to predict, as, as you know, <laughs> what the future <laughs> holds. Um, but I think there are some trends emerging that I think are set to continue. We're seeing more and more scrutiny over regulatory reporting from the regulatory authorities. Um, the, the PRA is increasing the use of external, I think I mentioned earlier, skilled persons to perform independent assessments over firms reporting. Uh, firms that are initiating more voluntary reviews of their own returns. I would say we're, we're seeing a move away from infrequent ad hoc reviews to more frequent recurring reviews. And a number of firms are working through the merits themselves of undertaking external assurance activities that could be publicly shared with shareholders and investors in the future. So when you take all of this together, I, I think we're likely to see a shift towards something in t akin to recurring assurance over regulatory reporting in the future. Okay. Thank you, Nigel. And, and when we were planning for this podcast and thinking about both of these topics, one of the common strands for me was how significant these areas are for the senior managers leading them and responsible for them. So how are the senior managers feeling about these new regulations? Perhaps, Chris, I'll come to you first. Okay, thanks, Sarah. I think senior managers are finding that they're under quite a lot of pressure. So I think with increasing regulatory burdens across the sector more generally, but also with you know, having to think about the implications of 5MLD and what that means you know, at an operational level, I think that's what you know keeps them awake at night and making sure that they are 
robust enough that they would stand the scrutiny of, for example, a regulatory visit. Um, you know, people often talk a lot about, you know, sanctions risks, for example, that very much is the key focus for monthly laundering reporting officers in the UK and people with that senior management function because this is such a high-risk area. If you get it wrong, you could face significant penalties, as we've seen in the US and even in Europe now as well with the FCA. So I think there's a lot of things for them to be thinking about. But I think just just even to add to that, you know, the what are the operational impacts of 5MLD? That's another thing that they've got to add to their to-do list. Okay, thank you. And Nigel, the senior managers you're dealing with, are they feeling similarly concerned? Yeah, no, I, I think they are. I think um, the level of regulatory scrutiny has increased significantly over the last couple of years. Um, we, we, as, as I've mentioned already, we've seen that manifest itself in a lot of externally instructed reviews from skilled persons. And we have seen a number of scenarios now where firms have been subject to to the output of that scrutiny, which can be in terms of the imposition of scalars and buffers to the capital and liquidity they need to hold, and in some cases, enforcement action that has led to, to some fines being levied against firms. So I think there's an increasing acknowledgement amongst senior managers within the institutions that they need to be seen to do more in this space, um, but perhaps more importantly that, need to be seen to think about how they evidence the work they've done in that space. And that evidence is a critical part of, of the work that they're doing. Um, and I think they need to focus, I'm going to call it two-way, so directionally two ways. They need to be um, recipients of information and relevant management information from their teams in the business, but they also need to be setting the tone from the top and sort of culturally by sort of putting very clear expectations into their management teams to provide information that enables them to fulfil their duties too. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, well, we could carry on talking about both these topics for, for quite some time. Um, but thank you both, uh, Chris and Nigel, for such an interesting uh, discussion. It's fascinating to hear about the latest regulatory challenges and areas of uh, supervisory um, activity. Um, so thank you very much for listening. Um, please don't forget to subscribe to future episodes of the podcast. And we'll be back next month with our next episode. So thank you very much.